I was reading about a woman who was a U.S. government official who very frequently traveled overseas, and in her travels, she kind of made it a habit to try to identify signs that foreign uh, restaurants and other businesses and establishments had made for American tourists that somehow got lost in translation. Some of those I thought were quite interesting that she noted when she was at an airline ticket office in Denmark that they said that we take your bags and send them in all directions. I don't know that that's what they meant. I think there are some American companies that could say the same thing about baggage. There's also another one that she came across in a Swiss restaurant. And they said that their declaration was that our wines leave you with nothing to hope for. But the one I think that was the most interesting and her favorite was at a fine French hotel. They urged you upon coming in the door by saying, uh, leave your values at the front desk. I'm not sure that's what they meant. But sometimes doesn't it seem like when we're out there in the world that what they're saying to us as we go among them, leave your values at home, at work, or when you're in our domain. And I think when we feel that kind of pressure in a variety of areas, it it can cause us to forget the song that we sometimes sing together, that this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Or as Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What he was saying is you've got different values than the world has values. When we read the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, and it's not something that you've not heard before, but the book of Romans divides into two sections. And that first section is what we call the doctrinal section. There's a lot of truth that's being taught, and it's based on one very fundamental idea, that is, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It's really what the whole book is about, but in Romans 1 through 11, you have the Apostle Paul laying out this great truth and and all the layers to it. But then in chapter 12, there's a transition that is made very clear when Paul says, Therefore, I I urge you. And then he goes forward from chapter 12 to chapter 16, and he's telling us how do we put that truth, that the gospel is God's power and the salvation to everyone that believes. How do we put that into our truth when we're not together, when we're not studying our Bibles, but we're out there in everybody's lives, and when they're in our lives? And I want to suggest to you that everything that he says to take the doctrinal into the practical is based on just three imperatives that's found in those first two verses. That pivot point in the book of Romans. Those three imperatives are that we're to give our lives as living and holy sacrifices. It's the first imperative. The second imperative is don't be conformed to this world. And the third imperative is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And listen, it doesn't matter what application we're trying to make in Romans 1 through 11, those three precepts, those imperatives are going to have a role in that. Maybe all of them, maybe one of them. And and, and if you'll look at the rest of the book, it seems to be the case. That when it comes to our responsibility to government, we're to give our bodies a living sacrifice to God. We're to not be conformed to this world, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. When it comes to navigating through matters of conscience, same thing. 
When it comes in chapter 15 to putting our brethren and their needs above our own, it's one or more of those precepts. And then when we come to chapter 12, in that very chapter where it occurs, in our relationship with one another, whenever my life intersects yours, I am to be putting myself on the altar of the sacrifice to God that I have committed to because I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the gospel is the power of salvation to me in that regard. Or, I'm not to do like the world when it comes to how I relate with you. And I am to have Jesus to transform my life and my dealings with you. That being the case, when we come to Romans chapter 12 and we get to verse 4 through verse 8, Paul builds on those three precepts by saying everybody's got a role. You've got a place, you've got a part to play in the body. And as he gets past that, he talks about how do you play your role using those three imperatives. Giving your life a living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. Well, it's interesting that the head of that list, he says that what seems to be the driving force is love. In that long paragraph from verse 9 to verse 21, he says your love is to be genuine. It's to be without hypocrisy. You love in deed and not just in word. It's easy to say, I love you. And it may not take very long in your learning to, to, and your being around somebody for you to say, I love you, and for them to say that to you. But he's saying your love is to be genuine. It's also to be brotherly, to recognize that we're tied together by our faith in Jesus And we're to prefer one another in love. All the relationships that we have outside the body of Christ, the ones that we should prefer the most are the ones that we have with each other. And everything that comes out in the rest of this paragraph seems to have the foundation of love. Put it to the test. Verse 13, benevolence. Verse 13, hospitality. Verse 15, rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping with those that weep. And then in verse 16... Where we're not to, to think so highly of ourselves, but we are, he notice, he says, we're to associate with one another that are lowly. In fact, the, the phrase in the New American Standard is, associate with the lowly. And that word associate means to accommodate ourselves, to acclimate ourselves to others' circumstances. And when we see this word that we are to give company with, that we're to associate with, that we're to accommodate ourselves to other people, this is a word that's only found three times in the New Testament. And the other two times that that word is used, it's used in a negative sense. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul is talking about what uh, Peter and the other brethren are doing with the Gentiles. They're eating with them, and then there's certain ones that come from James and Jerusalem. And as soon as they come around, uh, Peter withdraws himself from that, and it was so bad that it carried away Barnabas with them. That word translated carried away is the same word as associate in Romans 12 and verse 16. And and really, it's a dramatic point. He's saying, who is Barnabas? He's the son of encouragement. He's the guy who's always trying to make other people feel a part of things. And Peter, what you've done is so bad is that you have caused Peter to come along, no, Barnabas to come along with you. You've carried him away, this encouragement guy, in doing the same thing that you're doing. Interestingly, Peter's the one that uses it the other time. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 17, he says, Don't be carried away with the error of unprincipled men. 
So that word is the word that Paul uses in a positive way. He uses it in Romans 12 and verse 16 and he says, I want you to acclimate or to accommodate yourself to the circumstances of the humble. About 10 years ago, I went with a brother and we went over and did a, a just short of two weeks a mission trip to the country of Cameroon on the continent of Africa. And given where we were kind of in a remote location, this brother and I, we stayed in the preacher's house, the local preacher. It was a hut. And it was uh, quite an eye-opener. Uh, that's not how you live each and every day. And, and it was his wife, Magdalena, she cooked all of our meals. And so she's from local fare and supply. She's providing our food. We slept. Actually, they gave us their bedroom, and they slept in the children's bedroom in that little two-bedroom hut. And we got to experience those 95-degree evenings that was something that they dealt with each and every day of the year. We live like they lived all the time. I got to thinking about the idea of association. Now, my co-worker grew up in, uh, in a reservation in Arizona, and he was surrounded by what would rightly be considered third world uh, conditions. And yet it was an adjustment for him, and it was certainly an adjustment for me. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 12 and verse 16. I want you to adjust to the circumstances of the lowly. I ask myself the question, why would the Apostle Paul say that? Well, at least two reasons came to my mind as I studied the text. Number one, because they must have had lowly members in the church at Rome. There must have been those that would have fit that qualification as the humble or those that were in a have-not position. And the second reason why that the Apostle Paul would say this, associate with the lowly, is because they weren't naturally doing that in the first century. And I don't know that we always naturally do that in the 21st century. James's audience, at least some of them, were struggling with that very idea. And so that's why he says, brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if there comes into your assembly a man in a gold ring and fine clothes... And there also come into your assembly a poor man in dirty clothes and you give preference to the rich man and you say to him, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man in dirty clothes, you stand over there, sit at my footstool. Have you not become uh, those who make distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? My, my dearly beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. Now John is also addressing an audience where some of them seem to be struggling with this. In 1 John 3 and verse 17, he says, If there's, uh, uh, if you uh, are, are one, and there comes in one who has need of daily food, and you, you shut up your heart of compassion against them, how does the love of God dwell in you? Now, I don't want to look at Paul's words in Romans 12, 16. It's Paul that tells us, as those who are living sacrifices, who are not conformed to this world, but who are transformed... He's the one that says associate with the lowly. And it is John that says that we're to do this from love, that we're to love one another by associating with the lowly. But it's James's words that I want to look at for just a few minutes tonight and seeing how to do that. James is so practical. He lays out for us some principles that can help us. 
So let's look at that for just a few moments tonight. First of all, to associate with the lowly, what James would tell us is don't show partiality toward others in your walk of faith. Now what James does here in the beginning of this particular discussion is he talks about faith. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say that even those folks who are showing partiality, he doesn't say they don't have faith. It's a matter of what kind of faith did they have. And James is really talking about faith all throughout this lengthy section here. He's saying that there's some faith that's good faith and there's some faith that's bad faith. And if you look at the particular faith that he has, that one might have, he says, don't have a prejudiced faith. That's a bad faith. Verse 1. Have a prosperous faith. Be rich in faith. That's a good faith. In verse 14, he would say, don't have a passive faith. That's a faith that doesn't work. But instead, have a perfected faith. That's a faith that's a good faith. That's a faith that works. And so he says, what kind of faith do you have? Is it a good faith or a bad faith? Is it an acceptable faith or an unacceptable faith? And he's going to make the point that there are those who might profess that they have faith. But their works don't show. What use is it, my brethren, if a man say he has faith and has not works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or in need of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them the things that are necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith that doesn't have works is dead being alone. Someone may say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But will you not know, O foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Alright, so what James is saying in James 2, 14 through 20 is there's a faith that can proclaim and says and there's a faith that acts and obeys. And there's a problem with our faith if we say it, but our lives aren't showing it. But the problem with one's faith in the early part of the chapter is that one has a faith that depends on who it is that they're around. It's a partial faith. I demonstrate one level of faith around somebody and a different level with somebody else. And so when we begin to look, James is saying, you're showing, you're showing partiality in your faith when it comes to the lowly person as opposed to the wealthy person. There's a lot of different ways that we may make judgments based on the appearance of people, but James's focus in context is on the rich man and the poor man. If you look at what James says, James says that you uh, hold up and you really pay special attention to the one who is, uh, appears to be wealthy and doing well. And then the one that's not, the one that is in poor uh, apparel and has no jewelry, you almost shove aside. You make distinctions among yourself. And what James is saying is it's a, a faith problem if we judge somebody based on some external rather than on the value of the person. Now, that's more than if we say, hey, look, I want to give you, and I don't know what is the best place in the church services today, is it the, the, is it the front row or maybe it's the very back row? I'm not sure where it is, but if we say, hey, I want you to sit in this very special place, it's more than just that. And it's more than just how we treat them when they're at the assemblies. It's do we treat people the same regardless of their status? Do we give equal preference to the ideas of those who are influential 
but also to those who don't have influence? Do we show partiality in some way? Do we show respect towards somebody who has versus somebody who doesn't have? You know, the New Testament tells us we're not to show partiality in our hospitality. And Peter says on the basis of uh, the love that we have, we're going to show that hospitality based on the fact that they're children of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 9. And so I'm not going to be partial with regard to you if you're not one that others or that the world would see very little value in. Now, how do we make that practical to us today? You know, there are some who don't have the influence in the body of Christ that others do. It could be that we're talking about somebody who maybe they've lost their spouse, a widow or widower, and they don't have a voice in leadership. Or maybe it's a single parent who is struggling to try to do that job without the support of a Christian mate. Or or maybe it's a a circumstance where somebody is considered a a blue-collar worker or having a menial-type job. Or maybe somebody who's struggling to find consistent employment. Or or maybe it's the meek and the timid who don't seem to have a place where they feel like they belong. Or maybe it's the new member who doesn't have the deep roots that others do that have been here a lot longer. James is saying that you're not to show partiality toward people in your walk of faith. Don't make arbitrary distinctions like that. But then as we look at what James says, a second thing that he tells us with regard to associating with the lowly is that we are not to become those who make distinctions and become judges with evil motives. As James is encouraging now in verse 4, If there is a primary emphasis in the epistle on faith and works, there's a secondary emphasis on the matter of judgment. James says to the Christians there, don't put yourself in the seat of judgment. That's the place that doesn't belong to you. Look at James 2 and verse 4 and James 4 and verse 11. At the same time, he reminds us who does occupy that seat of judgment. And that's the Lord. There's one lawgiver and one judge who's able to save and destroy. Who are you that judges your neighbor? James 4 and verse 12. Grudge not one against the other, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge, the judge, stands before the door. James chapter 5 and verse 9. But even though James is talking about rich and poor, in 21st century America, especially in in our area, maybe that's not as often the issue. Those that are rich and those that are poor. It's hard for us to sometimes even tell that. I remember being a teenager in Hinesville, Georgia, and pulling up a few cars down from this older guy who showed up in a red F-150 pickup truck, had on a, a plaid shirt, looked like a farmer, had on a cap, and walked into Walmart ahead of me, and I walked in right behind him. It didn't take me but a few seconds more to realize who that old farmer guy was in the old red pickup truck. His name's Sam Walton. And Sam Walton looked like he had very little money to his name. At one time, he was the richest man in the world, Walton, Walmart, same guy. You know, most of us look like we're from about the same rung of the socioeconomic ladder. You can't really tell that kind of thing. So how do we make distinctions? How do we become judges with evil motives? Aren't there other ways that we can do this with regard to the externals of other people? Let me give you just a couple of those ideas where we might find ourselves looking down on others. What about based on their lifestyle? 
What about those who come among us and maybe they look like they're living pretty rough? Maybe it looks like you just not use a lot of imagination to figure out that maybe they're living kind of a hard life. It may be judging by the tattoos that we see, or their hairstyle, or their hair color, or some way that looks like, well, they're just, they're kind of rough. And, and here's the challenge. When they come among us, do we go out of our way to make sure that they feel at home and welcome? Or do we make sure that we give them a look? Or we just ignore them so that maybe they don't come back again? You know, this was a problem in Jesus' day in Luke 15, 1 and 2. Jesus is there with the, the publicans, the, the tax collectors and the sinners, and they were gladly coming to him to hear him. And the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones that grumbled and said, this man eats with sinners. And it's from that that Jesus teaches the lost parables about how we should treat even those that the world would marginalize. And so the challenge for us is not to compromise the truth so that the lost feel comfortable in their lostness, but to let them know as they're looking to us for guidance that we're going to lead the way. And that begins with how we treat them when we have interaction with them. And so if we're not careful, we can make, we can become judges with evil motives regarding somebody's lifestyle. Some, you know, especially if they come among us, what they're telling us is, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for help. I'm not finding the answer somewhere else. And we have a prime opportunity to help them when they come among us. But what about their ethnicity? Is this not a way sometimes if we're not careful that we can become those who make distinction and become judges with evil motives? Got a good friend in Virginia by the name of Robert Smith. And Robert says, you know, if we're not careful, we get distracted with God's paintbrush. He says, but if you open us up, we all look the same on the inside. And it actually goes deeper than that. We're all made in the image of God. And we all have an eternal soul that's valuable to God as anybody else's soul. We're equally important. In Acts 17 and verse 26, Paul literally says that of one, God has made every nation of mankind. And I love the way the King James puts it. He has made of one blood all nations of men. The idea literally with that word is one in contrast to more than one. You know, I think it's probably true that prejudice exists in just about every neighborhood in society, but where it should never exist is in a Christian home and in a Christian heart. So as James, if he were talking to us today, perhaps in our culture and society, he might say, don't become judges with evil motives based on their ethnicity. And here's another one. What about their age? You know, here's another one of those circumstances where people in more than one place may be guilty of something. Do we ever make judgments about somebody because of their youth? Do we draw conclusions about their generation and maybe we uh, sell them short and we believe that they're inexperienced and maybe they lack value because of their youth? How about on the other end of things? Do we sometimes dismiss somebody because they're older and because we feel like they're out of touch or maybe as a result of the things we don't feel like we have in common, we, we just really don't think it's worth the trouble? What's interesting to me is that in the same letter to a young preacher, the Apostle Paul in that one epistle says, I want you to give honor and respect to those that are older, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. And I want you to do the same thing for those that are younger, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. And so what's drilled down in the body of Christ is that we're one family. And as a family, we're not going to make those kind of distinctions. And as we're trying to reach out to those who need our Lord, 
We're going to make sure that we don't make such distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil motives. But it's so easy to do that because that's how the world sees things. They have their own value system. And what James is saying is don't fall prey to that. I want you to look higher than that. I want you to see in a different way. And that leads us to the third thing that James is uh, indicating to us here. And that is, if we're going to associate with the lowly, we need to see through heavenly eyes. In verse 5, James is encouraging us to not have the value system that the world has. That if we're going to do that, we're going to have to see things the way God sees them. Well, how does God see things? Well, the first thing that he says is, is, look, God's value system is that God chooses the things that the world doesn't choose. We need to recognize that in what he says here is that God chose them. When you look at those that the world calls the have-nots, you need to realize that God chose them. And God chooses what the world doesn't choose. He chooses the things the world calls foolish. He chooses the things the world says is weak. He chooses the things that the world says doesn't exist that he might put to uh, confounding the wisdom of the wise. When we look at people who may seem to be lowly, God says they're precious to me. Not always, but so often the lowly are those who may appreciate better God's blessings and God's character and nature. But also, God sees them as rich. You know, his, his standard, again, is different. And God sees those who are able to look with humble eyes. You know, in, in poorer countries, so often, those without the material things of this life have a greater understanding of the need that they have of God. Perhaps that's what James has in mind here. God has chosen the, those who are poor to be rich in faith. And God also sees them as heirs. God sees them as those who will inherit everything that he has to give. Do you notice, as Steve was reading earlier, he says those that you esteem so highly and you're trying to cater to, and he says so often what you do is you look at the rich and you see somebody who has, and maybe somebody who can give to you. You look at the poor and you see them as somebody who can't give you anything and might even cost you something. Jesus is teaching humility in Luke 14 when he says, When you prepare a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you'll be blessed, for they have no means to repay you, but you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Luke 14, 13, and 14. He says, when you look at people, no matter who they are, you look at them through heavenly eyes. But let's, let's take that with regard to those that the world sees very little value in. What he wants you to do is to invest in their lives. To take an interest in them. If we're going to take an interest in them and associate with them, we're going to have to see them first. We're going to sit with them at potlucks. We're going to have them into our home and we're going to go and visit in their home. We're going to take the time to build relationships with them. There's a whole lot of different ways that the world assigns value or assigns no value to them. Whether it's age, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's income level. But what James is saying is that we are to associate, to have company with those even that the world assigns very little value to. The U.S. Census Bureau statistics are out, the latest ones at least that I know about. And what they reported was that 40 million people, 12.3% of the U.S. population is poor. And then they had the statistics from 2019 for the state of Kentucky. 
And what they found is that there are 16.3% of people in the state of Kentucky who are living below the poverty line. Those are certainly what we often refer to as low-hanging fruit. People that James would tell us to, to focus on and to look for. But anybody who might be discarded or in some way treated in a different way from an external point of view are those that we want to make sure that we see. Those who visit Anne Hathaway's cottage, not the actress, but back further in British literature, in her particular cottage, they will take you on a history lesson as you go there. As they walk you through the kitchen, uh, the oven that's in the next to the kitchen fireplace, they would point out what would happen back in the day. In that oven that was in the fireplace, they would take a lump of dough to bake bread, and they would put it down on the coals. There was no tin that they put it in. And of course, as you would imagine, that the fire was the hottest down there at the bottom. And so they would cook that dough until it was done. And having that completed bread on the bottom, it would be a lot more well done and crispy. And it would be charred and be dirty. And on the top, it would be just golden brown and just right and clean. They would feed the bottom part of that bread to the servants. That was their piece. But they served the upper crust to the master of the house. You know, the idea is that in the kingdom of God, there is no have and have not. There is no upper crust and lower crust. In the kingdom of God, we are to see one another in such a way that we condescend or that we associate with all of those who make up the body of Christ. The concept, the principle, love one another by associating with the lowly. It's certainly what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. It's what John has in mind in trying to teach what true love is, that love of Christ in 1 John chapter 3. And it's at the heart of what James says. If you'll notice right past this in verse 8, there's a royal law. And the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. That applies to us when we leave here. But it also applies to us as the body. This kind of unity, this kind of equal treatment will help us to have an environment in which everyone will feel like there's a place for them to be. Christ certainly makes that invitation to all. He wants everyone to to have a seat at his table in the kingdom of God. Perhaps it is tonight that you've not yet made that decision, that you want to become a part of the great body of Christ and to have a place as an heir, to be rich in God's eyes. Maybe you're ready to act on that faith, that Jesus is God's Son, and that you're ready to repent and be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're there ready for that, we're ready to help you. If you're a child of God who needs us to pray for you, if you need to respond in any way, We would encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.